0: see, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. This is the last uh, the last of three weeks where um, the Apostle Peter is writing to this group of people who, uh, it's first century, it's early church. Some of the very first churches indeed. And these churches, the people in these churches are going through a lot, a lot of suffering um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, thank you, Charlie. That's helpful. Yeah. I have no idea what you're doing. Um, and uh, going through a lot. And so, Um, Two weeks ago we talked about how Peter is calling them by God to to submit to government even when it doesn't make sense. Even when the government uh, is oppressive in some ways and it doesn't always line up with where they are and where they're thinking and where we are and where we're thinking. Last week we talked about how uh, workers are to submit to their bosses and it actually says slaves to their masters Um, even when that doesn't make sense. Even when you can't readily see why we should be doing that. Maybe we have a boss or something that's a jerk or uh, doesn't, isn't worthy of your respect. This week, um, Peter frames this discussion in terms of a marital relationship. And uh, he talks about uh, a wife and her role and then a husband and his role in this. And given that I spent a whole semester, last semester, talking about this sort of thing... I'm not going to go into that hugely tonight. You can listen to the podcast last semester, or we can talk about it some other time. Um, we're going to talk about a few things, and then, uh, and then we're going to ask a bigger question of this text in really the last two or three weeks. So um, let's read it, though, first, and um, then we're going to pray, and then we'll start looking at it together. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to go 1 through 7. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or of the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women, to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray before we look at this together. God, I pray that you would help us. This text is hard. Um, it seems to not make much sense to us today I Pray you'd help us to understand it. I pray for each of us here uh, We come from different places I pray you'd meet us here in the place that we are I pray and ask these things in jesus name. Amen well Look, i'm not gonna lie This passage is not a passage that I just get really excited about reading and talking about um because if you're like me, when you, when you read that, it's a little bit like uh, this TED Talk. That I was, do you all listen to these TED Talks? Do you all know what they are? Yeah, they're really cool. Um, what they are is they get these people who are kind of es- experts on little small subjects, and they have these I- great ideas. And these people will get up in front of these huge groups and kind of give these mini presentations, you know, eight minutes, ten minutes, whatever. And they'll talk about their kind of area of expertise. I was watching one last week with this woman named Sunny Brown, or Suni Brown, I don't know how to say her first name. And she was talking about uh, the importance of doodling, (laughs) of doodling on your paper. And she uh, had done all this great research and study about how doodling actually engages your mind on all these different fronts. There's like four aspects of the mind and engages all of them. And she's sitting there saying that actually, um, like corporations and stuff should encourage their employees to be doodling during meetings. You know, what is thought of as being so offensive when someone's sitting there talking and you're just like doing this right here and drawing pictures and making flowers and everything else. The lady says, that's actually good. She said, but it's so interesting, it's so taboo that to go before a corporation or somebody and say this is like screeching fingernails on a chalkboard. That it's just like, are you serious? What are you doing? You can't do that. And when I read this passage, you just kind of look at it and say, really, Peter? Really? Why do you have to say that? That seems so outdated. It seems so primitive. And so, Brent, why did you have to read that tonight? Why are we going to do this? Well, I had to because we're going straight through Peter and this is what's next. So, um, but I want to suggest that There's a few things that this passage is saying, and there's a few things that it's not saying. So we're going to take a few minutes and talk about those and kind of pull apart some of the verses in here that make us cringe a little bit or that maybe make you not so excited that you brought your friend tonight. Um, We're going to talk about those things, and then we're going to pull back and ask a bigger question of this week's passage and the last couple weeks. And the question is this. Can I trust God? Can I trust God? So let's look at the few things that this passage is saying and the few things it's not saying. Um, first thing is that we need to see is that this passage isn't talking, uh, back when it was originally given, it wasn't addressing all women. That women just in general were called to go out and just submit to every man you see. Okay? That doesn't sound good at all. Um, that when, when Peter writes this, he tells them, look, submit to your own husbands. And he later would go on to talk about what it even means to submit. But submit to your own husbands. So it's a wife and husband thing. This isn't like just a civil and cultural mandate that Peter's making here. He's saying there's something happening within the marital bond that that's what he's talking about. That's what's in play here. So in the mid-first century, let me tell you about what marriages looked like. The wife was expected to profess the religion of her husband. Okay? So if a woman's husband was uh, pantheistic and he was worshiping kind of the universe as being God, or if he was uh, worshiping some Greek cultic pagan religion and he worshiped statues, she was supposed to do the same thing. Or um, if he converted to Christianity, culturally, she was supposed to follow him along just right into it. Right? There weren't a lot of individual rights for women in that time. But however, if the wife became a Christian, The husband was free to let her go and to divorce her. Culturally, this is not a biblical thing, this is what was happening in the culture. The husband was free to consider her unfaithful and to leave her. Last week we talked about how slaves in the first century, they were kind of at the bottom of the totem pole. The bottom rung of the ladder in terms of status or or priority or anything. Women were just barely above that. They had a few rights and a few kind of dignifying marks, but they really weren't highly looked upon. And so Peter's doing something really different here. He's actually addressing women. He's addressing uh, women and giving them dignity in doing so. But what he is doing in this passage is he's looking at these women who are married and whose husbands um, aren't yet Christians. And he's looking at them and saying this. He's saying, The way that you live matters. The way that you live and the way you conduct yourself, it really matters. I was talking to a friend the other day who, um, I was in his office and I saw this uh, software case, CD case thing, on by his computer on his desk. And I said, oh, do you have Accordance also? It's a Bible software program. Do you have Accordance also? And he said, yeah, I got it a few years ago. I was like, oh, cool, I just got it. Um, a, few, a few weeks ago. I actually don't even know how to use it yet. I, it's really frustrating. I wish I did. Um, but I don't have time to watch the tutorials. But anyway, we were sitting there talking about that and he said, man, let me tell you a story about it. He said about five years ago, a buddy of mine from seminary was trying to get rid of a bunch of books from, from seminary and stuff that he wasn't reading and using anymore. And part of it was this, this disk. He had it already pre-installed or installed on his computer and didn't have much use for the disk anymore. And so uh, Bo, my friend, grabbed the disk and was like, oh, cool. you mind if I take that? And the guy said, no, that's fine. And so Bo got home. He tried to start installing it on his computer and realized that he needed, you know, like the key, right, the key to, un- to unlock it and all that stuff. And so he didn't have that. And so he called the company, called Accordance, and started telling him a story and said, look, hey, my name is Bo. Um, yeah, I lost the key. You know, I bought this several years ago, but whatever, but I lost the key. Can you give one to me? And they said they just, he said they gave him a litany of questions. All these things like, you know, where'd you buy it? Where, no, 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 all these things. And he was like starting to kind of feel it. He was like, oh my gosh. But he stuck to his story, which was a lie. (laughs) He stuck to it firm. And he went all the way to the end. And he hung up and he got it to work. And he said he took about three steps out into his living room and looked at his wife. And he said he felt the conviction immediately. And he looked at his wife and said, Honey, keep the kids out of the back room. I've got to go call these people back. I just lied to them. And so he called them back and, and he asked for the guy, Dan, that he had been talking to on the phone. He said, Dan, hey, this is Bo. We just hung up. He's like, Oh yeah, Bo, how can I help you? He said, Dan, I just lied to you. I did not buy that copy of accordance a few years ago. It was a buddy of mine who bought it and he just gave it to me and I was trying to I was trying to steal the you know the the cotton i was trying to steal it and the guy said oh man he said bo i'm going to tell you something he said i can't tell you the number of times i've heard that story he said we have people calling in all the time saying that exact same thing or a slight variation of it but you're the first one who's ever called back and this guy was really taken aback that bo would do that See, the way we live by our convictions, it matters. It changes people. People take notice. And when Peter is looking at these wives who are married to unbelieving husbands, what he's doing is he's looking at them and saying, look, the way that you live matters. People will notice and it will change them. It will change the things around you. Now, if you move down to verse 3 and 4, he kind of plays this out a little bit. And he, we read this and you're like, good grief, are you telling these women they can't look pretty? I mean, he's like, you can't braid your hair, you can't put makeup on, all this stuff. So what's he saying? Well, again, a little study of the first century helps us because through the art and literature of the first century, one thing that was very clear about what was happening in, in, uh, in fashion these days is that women would, women would dress extravagantly, extraordinary hair and makeup, like over-the-top type stuff. You'd see art stuff in art that would just be like... You know, art tends to exaggerate anyway, but it just be like these lavish hairdos and like this jewelry that was this big and all of this stuff. It was way over the top. And Peter's living at is and saying, that's not what makes you beautiful. That's not what makes you beautiful. That's not going to win your husband over. Your out loud living is not. It's what's inside. It is your inner beauty. That's a weird phrase. I don't like that phrase. It's your inner beauty. I'm going to use it. <laughs> that is going to win him over. It is something. He goes on to talk about what is this. What is inner beauty? Um, when I was at OU, I remember every fall whenever a sorority rush would be going on. If you're in a sorority, this isn't a knock on, on you at all. Um, but I, I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard a girl say, Oh, she's got a heart of gold. And I just want to say, I don't even know what that is. I don't know what a heart of gold is at all. And I don't know if you do either. But it would just be all around. And so Peter's looking and saying... Have a heart of gold. <laughs> That's what you want. That will win him over. So the question then becomes what in the world is a heart of gold? Well, Peter defines a heart of gold by saying it's a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, we hear that again and we think, is he saying that you have to just be like this little mouse of a person and just kind of be really sweet and all of that and just kind of sit in the corner and be gentle? Is that what Peter's saying? The word there for gentle is the word meek. It's only used four times in the New Testament. Two times it's used of Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus Christ is meek. He is gentle. I don't think you could look at Jesus and say He was just a walkover of a person. He wasn't passive. He wasn't just a little nobody who sat in the corner. No, but He was gentle in His conduct. It says quiet. What in the world does quiet mean? You can't talk? No, what Peter is saying is let what is coming out from within, let that be what defines you. Let that be what people around you notice and take hold of. It's not the out loud side of you that is going to win people over and your husbands in this case. It is going to be the quietness, the way that you go about submitting to him, which is a biblical category. We can talk about it, you can listen to last semester stuff or ask me about it if you want to talk more about that. So that's kind of where he leaves it with wives. And he goes on to talk about Sarah, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But then he turns to the husbands and says, look, okay, the holy women or the women of faith are called to submit to their husbands. Husbands, what are are they supposed to do? What are the men supposed to do? They should live with their wives according to what that means is Christian knowledge. That husbands are to treat their wives, if they are converted, right, he's not talking to Christian husbands, that they're to treat their wives with Christian love. Which means laying down your life for, for their wife. And you have to hear how much of a contrast that was to what was going on in that culture. Peter is telling them the unthinkable, Men, go and serve your wives. In a culture that gave no value to women, that is extremely dignifying to women. And that is extremely humbling for men. That we're called to go and lay down our lives for those who are weaker. And that simply means physically weaker. It doesn't mean any other way. It doesn't mean mentally. It doesn't mean an intelligent. It doesn't mean anything. It means a vessel. It's talking about a jar. Husbands, you are to go lay yourselves down and care for the opposite sex. They are physically weaker than you in most cases. And live with them in that way. Know that and care for them. Um, So what is it saying about Abraham and Sarah? What what is it saying about Sarah is it holds her up as a model. Let me tell you a little quick story about Sarah and Abraham, and then we'll go into the second point of really wondering, can we trust God? There's a bridge in here. Because if you turn back into Genesis 12, you don't have to go there, but Genesis 12 through um, early in the chapter 20, it's the story of Abraham who was the father of the Jewish religion. He's the father of Christianity, you could say. And his wife was was Sarah. Now what happened was Abraham's family, they were a pagan family. They lived up in in Babylon in uh, the fleeing my that's all right. Um, that's gonna drive me crazy. They lived up in Babylon, which is an utterly pagan nation, and and they moved down to this place called Haran. They were gonna go all the way to what is now the land of Israel, but they stopped in this place called Haran. And they stopped there and they had huge possessions, wealth, livestock, everything. And so they set up shop there in, in Haran or Haran. But God called to Abraham when he was in Haran and said, Come and follow me and I will give you a land. I will make you a great nation. And you start, God starts making all these promises to Abraham. And so essentially what happens is Abraham looks at his wife and says, I don't know, this has never happened to me either but I just heard this voice as clear as day telling me that I need to go down to the land of Canaan. And so Sarah followed him. And it didn't make sense to her, most likely. How could it have? She didn't hear it. But she follows him. And the next many chapters of Genesis talk about Abraham as God's calling him to do all these things and go to all these places. And Sarah is following him when it doesn't make sense. Now, the reason that Peter puts that in here It's because God is calling us to follow Him at times and to do things when seemingly it doesn't make sense. And so the question that that we're all left with in any sort of situation where we think, can I trust God? We have to ask that. God, can I trust You? Are You trustworthy? Can I trust what You say? And can I trust what You see? And here's what I mean by that. that. Can I trust what the Bible says, if this is your word, God can I trust that what it says is true. And if you'll notice, if you have a Bible in front of you, three times now, Peter has referenced in chapter two, verses four, in chapter two twenty, and now again in verse four, he says this thing. In two four, he says, Look, though there was one who was rejected, he was chosen. That doesn't make sense, it's backwards. It says in God's sight, it is precious. And then in chapter 2, verse 20, when it says, Submit to your masters, even if they're unjust, for when you do that, in God's sight, it is precious. And now he's saying, Wives, submit to your husbands. Do this. Your internal beauty is what matters. I promise, in God's sight, that is precious. And so we have to ask God, can I trust you? Do I trust what you say? And can I trust that you see things that we don't always see? Okay? Now, as you as you go down, as you think about how this applies to your life, I want you to think how many different times you're faced with a question and you're wondering, God, I, I don't know if I can trust you. Or sometimes we flat out don't and we go do what we want to do anyway. Um, last fall, I, I've had a, a storied history with with money and just a struggle of my love of money and uh, my lack of trusting God for providing for me and for my family uh, that led to a point last fall where when I made a bunch of very rash uh, financial decisions for our family uh, I, I didn't talk with Sarah about it uh, which was was wrong we we always talk about these things I didn't Um, And and it was wrong of me to do these things. Now, tell you why I did them. It's because I was caught up. I was watching so much news. I was watching all of these things about what was happening over in Europe with the Eurozone debt crisis, which most of you are like, what in the world is that? That's how I should be racking this. I don't even really know. But I knew enough that I would listen to somebody and it freaked me out. And so, what did I do? I stopped trusting. I said, God, I've got to take this into my own hands. And so I made all of these rash decisions without consulting anyone, really. And it left me anxious, and it left me angry, and it left me crying. As I was left in the aftermath thinking, God, what did I just do? What happened there? Friends, I didn't trust God. I don't trust God so many times. And so I'm going to ask you, in what ways have you not trusted God? In what ways do you wonder if you can trust God? Maybe you're in a relationship that you know you need to break up with this person. But you just don't know what it's going to be like on the other side. And you're looking at God saying, God, can I trust you that if I do what I know I need to do, can I trust you that you're going to be near me? That you're going to take care of me? That you're going to be there? Or maybe you're about to graduate and the thing that you've kind of always thought you were going to do suddenly isn't really panning out. And you're looking at God and saying, God, can I trust You? Can I trust that You're going to take care of me? Can I trust that You're going to be there whenever May comes and I don't have something lined up? Or maybe you're wondering, God, can I trust You When I go to this next meeting or this next social event that I go to, I know that I'm kind of sick and tired of going and feeling like I have to be the center of attention. And I don't like that. I don't like the way that I feel on the other side of that. I feel like I've used people for my own good. God, can can I trust You that You're enough for me? That if You love me and care for me, I don't have to have the approval and the attention of all these other people. Or of that hot guy or that cute girl, God, can I trust you? God, can I trust you when you tell me that if I stop trusting in myself to try and make this life work, can I trust you that you have a plan for me? That if I give myself over to you, that you're going to take care of me, can I trust you? Where are you currently asking that question in your life of God? God, can I trust you? If you're there, and if you're not there today, you'll be there tomorrow. And if you're relying on yourself, you're anxious, I promise you. And you're worried. Because you know you don't always make right decisions. You know that inside of your heart is not goodness. Is not always innocent. And so you should doubt your decisions if you're out making them on your own. But friends, I want to call us to the to the person of God. And ask him, God, will, will you take care of me? Can I trust you? And the really the question behind the question of can I trust you, God, is this God, are you good? Are you really good? Are you trustworthy? Are you trustable? Are you good? Think about the people who you trust in your life. Think about this. Why do you trust them? You trust them and I trust the people that I trust because I know something of them. I know their character. I've spent enough time with them that I know what they're going to do or how they're going to react or they've been recommended to me by a friend, and so I'm going to trust that friend, and I'm going to trust who they've recommended me to. We know something about them, something about their character that is trustworthy. So we turn, and we need to look at God, as we ask Him, God, can I trust You? the same moment, we need to say, God, are You good? There was a dad and his daughter who were in an amusement park one day. And he took her, because she had completed her summer reading program, he took her at the end of the summer as a reward for her. And they had ridden the the rides all morning into the early afternoon and had a really terrible lunch together, of churros and pretzels and all this stuff. In the afternoon, they had ridden most of the things, and from a distance, the little girl girl sees the roller coaster, the big roller coaster. She says, Daddy, I want to do that. I want to go ride that one. And he says, Okay, let's go. And so they start getting over there, and they go stand in the line that's two hours long. And after they ate a lemon freeze and a popsicle, they're getting closer and closer. And as they get closer and closer, the sounds of the roller coaster become more and more clear. And they become more and more real. And when the roller coaster cars pass overhead, it shakes and it vibrates. And the girls' excitement is turning into fear with each step they take in line as they get closer and closer. And at one point she looks up at her dad and she's crying. The excitement has turned to fear and now has turned to tears. And she looks at her daddy and says, Daddy, I'm scared. I'm scared, daddy. I don't want to do this anymore. And he says, honey, what's wrong? And she says, daddy. Daddy, I'm scared that we're not going to be Okay. She says, and he says, "Honey, do you trust me?" She says, "Yes, daddy." She says, he says, "Honey, it's going to be okay." Will you trust me that it's going to be okay?" And through her tears, she mumbles this, "Uh-huh. Daddy, I, I I trust you." And with that, she puts her head into his side and they keep on in the line. This little girl trusted her dad. Because she knew Him. She had a history of Him loving her. Of Him taking care of her. She knew something about His character. That He would take care of Mommy and her sisters. That He would do this. She trusted Him. He was trustworthy. And I'm going to suggest that behind all of our fears, behind all of our moments of wondering, God, can I trust You? In whatever your situation is, we're like that little girl in line asking, Can I trust you, Daddy? Can I trust you? God, can I trust you that you're good? That you're going to take care of me? Peter says here in verse 6, he says that you are Sarah's children. That is, people who trust in God. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening... That makes no sense. When Peter says, don't fear anything that's frightening, that makes no sense unless God is good. Unless God's character and His goodness means that you can trust Him. And so what has Peter done to this point? This is exactly what he's getting at. As through the last few weeks and this week, he's saying, look, I know it doesn't make sense right now. To submit to your husbands. I know it doesn't make sense to follow your boss and to work hard for him. I know it doesn't make sense to live under this government even though they're killing you. I know. But you can trust God because He's good. In chapter 1, verses 3, Peter says that God is gracious and merciful. He's good. In 1, verses 4-6, through he says that God gives us hope because of what Jesus has done. In verse one, chapter 116, he says that God is holy and good. Peter is building God's character. In chapter two, verses four and five, he says that God is near to us, because Jesus was willing to be cast away, that God has come near to us. In chapter 2: 9 he says that God brings us into the light, because Jesus was willing to be taken out into the darkness. In chapter two verses 13, he says that God is in control and he's sovereign. In two twenty and two twenty three says that God is just. You can trust Him; He's going to make things right. In chapter three, verse one, that just we just read. God brings dignity and life to people who have lost it. Friends, God is good. His character is one that you can trust. So in the midst of the fear and difficulty, Peter is grounding his readers, his appeal to his readers. He's a grounding his appeal to them to trust God in the very character of God. And so what about us? Can we trust God? Is God good? Friends, if... If the God that you believe in is the God of the Bible, the resounding message from Scripture is that, yes, He is good. He is absolutely good. You can trust Him. He is worthy of your trust. And if you get that, it changes everything. I have a friend named Jeff who I met at Vanderbilt some years ago. Um, <clears throat> But anyway, we we got to know each other when I was an intern out there. And Jeff had come from a background of, of a lot of abuse in different situations. Really had a really a hard life. And he went to Vanderbilt on an ROTC scholarship. And he did everything he was supposed to do. He was at every ROTC meeting, was never late to one. Did everything, climbed the ranks in his little squadron there. In the summers, he would go off to their ranger school and do their advanced training and go learn how to jump out of helicopters and planes so he could get a certain, uh, a certain level, so he could be commissioned at a, at a certain level when he got out of college. He did everything right. And then he went to law school with the intention that he would go into the JAG afterwards and serve, the, serve our country as a lawyer. He did everything right. In the midst of law school in the summers, he went and served the State Department abroad in Turkey. He did all of these things. He did everything right. There was something that happened to Jeff, though. Whenever he was coming out and it was time for him to be commissioned as an officer in the JAG Corps, he had to go through a physical. He had to go through this round of medical tests. You see, Jeff... As I mentioned, it had some things happen to him when he was young that really affected him deeply. It affected his mind. It affected the way that he related to other people at times. And he had a psychiatrist sit down and in 30 minutes write a note that disqualified Jeff from military service. And not only that, It is still pending whether or not Jeff is going to have to go back and repay his Vanderbilt tuition plus interest at over $200,000. See, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. That's not right. I read, this was last week when Jeff told me that he'd applied for a military waiver to try to appeal the process, and it got denied. And he wrote me an email and some others explaining all this. And at the end of it, he said this, and I'm going to read a couple lines. He said, When I realized that someone above me, talking about this this uh, psychiatrist, When I realized that someone above me has taken my darkest secrets and judged me negatively and dismissively, And I still believe in God and His goodness afterwards. What do I have to fear now? What else can they do to me? They've taken everything from me. But I believe that God is good. He quoted right after that a line. And it said, no tongue can bid me thence depart. What he's saying is there is nothing I could hear That would make me want to leave God. Why would I? Why would I when He's been so good to me? Friends, that doesn't make sense. Unless God is good. Unless Jeff knows something of the goodness of God and of His character. And so I want to ask you, as you think about your own life, what are you going to trust in that is worthy of your trust? What are you going to trust in and put your life into that is worthy of your life and of your hopes and of your dreams? Are you really just going to trust yourself this whole life? Are you going to bank your hopes and your dreams on someone else who has likewise fallen and fallible? Are you going to put everything you have into the hopes of a career that you think will, will make you happy and fulfill you? I offer to you, As Peter offered to these people, the God of the Bible, whose very character is good. And because of that, is worthy of your trust. His character was most on display when His own Son, Jesus, climbed up on the cross to give of Himself for His enemies. Friends, the cross didn't make sense. Will you trust Him? Let's pray.